Good afternoon, you are listening to The Stoop on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and via podcast on Spotify and iTunes. Brought to you by our news team, Alexandra Fernandez, Chancellor Miracle, Chris Laurie, Zayden Vergara, Dinah Jansen, Erica Singh, and me, Kareem Mosna. This Saturday, the founder of the research organization ETC Group, Pat Mooney, will be at Kingston City Hall to talk about the group's report, A Lawn Food Movement, Transforming Food Systems by 2045. Pat Mooney has been writing and speaking about food issues since the 1970s. Kathy Rothermal is director of the National Farmers Union Local 316 and also an organizer of this event coming up on Saturday, and she joined me to talk a bit more about what will be discussed at this event. There, there's two uh, possibilities, right? There's a sense of agricultural business as usual or this, this new uh, idea of how food systems can transform. Tell me a little bit about this idea of transforming the way that, that, that we look at our agriculture. Yeah, well, I think I think we're at a, a real turning point, and and you know we can debate what when that turning point actually happened or or if it has has happened. But agribusiness as usual is not going to get us where we want to be um, in the near future on climate change in particular. So I think Pat Pat's presentation and report are going to look at where we are at the moment and where that's leading us. And then I'll offer an alternative, which is uh, a return to a sustainable food system that is uh, based on principles of agroecology and uh, justice and equality and biodiversity in our seed world and our farming world. He's just retired recently, so um, this is the tail end of his career, but he's got a whole team working on continuing the work uh, that he has spent his life on and really focusing, I think, at the moment on how civil society can come together, needs to come together, must come together if we're going to push forward a different agenda than what, what's happening right now in the in the uh, industrial food system. You brought up an interesting point. You said going back. Um, t- tell me a little bit a- a- about what, what you mean in, in that sense. Well, I think... I think there are many principles that were in place uh, prior to industrialization that are still useful principles. And we, I think the UN has a, a great website where they look at a hundred different farming systems around the world that have been in existence for over 2000 years. So there are models out there on sustainability and uh, people and farming working together to maintain a quality of life, a quality of landscape that our current system does not, cannot do, has not done. So it's not so much going back because we're often accused in this kind of world, in the alternative agriculture world of wanting to go back to old times. I think a lot of the principles that have been used in the past are very appropriate for where we need to be today. So that's a lot to do with soil health. It has to do with uh, biodiversity on the farm, it has to do with scale. Um, it has to do with, in our case, we're certified organic, so we don't use any um, uh, synthetic pesticides, herbicides, or uh, fertilizer. So that is going back in, in the sense of uh, that's what we used to do. Um, but I think it's very appropriate for our future. I think I see agroecology is a very uh, information 
a knowledge-based system. Um, it's you have to know an awful lot to be a good farmer, and you have to need you need to know an awful lot about a lot of different subjects to be successful in a in a broader metric than what we're used to. What was the process involved in, in getting uh, Pat Mooney to come to speak at City Hall, which will be happening this coming Saturday? Yeah, uh, well, Sophia reached out to Pat by email and uh, just chatted a little bit about what she's up to. She's a student at Dalhousie right now studying philosophy and sustainable agriculture. So she just presented her some of her questions that she has in her classes that um, are not being answered, I would say, in her uh, university classes because... There aren't that many people in the world, really, who have a, a really good foundation on what the seed system is all about. So she reached out to Pat, and um, I guess he um, in, enjoyed her email and, uh, again, responded to her email with a uh, happy to come down. Um, Pat was also down here about a dozen years ago to give a talk to um we had the National Farmers Union brought him down about 10 years ago. So he's got quite a good history with the NFU and the work that we've been doing on the international front with the Via Campesia, which is the peasant workers uh, group, an international group. So uh, the National Farmers Union was a founding member of that organization. And Pat has also been involved in that. So there's there's some continuity and some some relationship that's happened over some of, uh, the, of his career and uh, the NFU. Well, let's talk a little bit about Pat. Uh, so I understand he's been speaking ab about uh, these very issues for several decades, and uh, he's really here to speak specifically about this report. Um, so tell me a little bit more uh, about Pat and, and about what uh, people can expect by, by attending this event this Saturday at 2 o'clock. Sure. He... Um... He wrote, he's written several books, uh, one uh, called Shattering, which was about seed politics. Uh, it came out in the 80s, late 80s. Um, and he's he's uh, written many reports since then that are mostly online. They're all online, I think, on his website. Um, and, for and for that work, he did win the Right Livelihood Award, which is an alternative Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, it's given to people who uh, are, are are taking a different approach, I guess, to mainstream um, activity. He's uh, he's started the Etc. Group um, and has been working with that not-for-profit for many years, um, and they are concerned with um, corporate concentration. Uh, appropriate technology, particularly for uh, uh, small farm farmers around the world and um, technology. Excellent. Okay. So yes, Pat Mooney, this Saturday, two to four, it's a free event, I understand, Memorial Hall at Kingston City Hall. I will be here to talk about uh, a long food movement transforming food systems by 2045. Thank you very much for uh, sh sharing some insight into this today, uh, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us, and uh, I, I hope that some of the Queen's students can come out. Pat's a very engaging speaker. He's very down-to-earth, and he's got a wide breadth of knowledge on this subject, so it should be a really great event. That was my conversation with Director of the National Farmers Union, Local 316, Kathy Rothermall. While it appears change is being considered by the Federal Electoral Boundaries Commission are not sitting well for residents north of the 401 who consider themselves Kingston residents.
The redistribution would see residents living north of the 401, many of whom pay taxes and work in Kingston, grouped into the new Gananoque-Brockville-Prescott riding rather than the Lanark-Frontenac-Kingston riding that they're currently a part of. Comments left on the redistribution website asked to be instead made part of the Kingston and the Islands riding. One commenter, Barb Lawson, wrote, If I go to a government office, I go to Kingston. The majority of comments made similar complaints, citing that the drive to a Gananakwe-Brockville-Prescott constituency office is 90 kilometers away. Kingston and the Islands MP Mark Gerritsen noted these residents should be a part of his riding based on their close proximity and vested interests within Kingston. While MP Scott Reed, whose current riding is Leonard Frontenac Kingston, says Kingston and the Islands is already far more populous than any rural neighbor from which it could hope to pick up territory, and adding the population north of Highway 401 makes the problem substantially worse on both sides of the equation. The new ridings would see the population included with communities like Brockville, Gananoque, Prescott, North Grenville, and Leeds and the Thousand Islands, while MP Reed's district would include Rideau Lakes, Westport, and Merrickville. Secretary of the Ontario Redistribution Commission Paula Ruddy says the Commission's final report will be presented to the Speaker of the House of Commons by February the 9th, and any changes are likely to be finalized between the spring and summer of 2023. This story courtesy of Owen Fullerton, local journalism initiative reporter with YGK News. You're listening to The Stoop on CFRC 101.9 FM, cfrc.ca, and on podcast. I'm Kareem Mosna, passing things over to Erica Singh with your campus news. Hello and welcome to The Scoop Campus Corner. My name is Erica Singh, and here are your campus news headlines for today. The nomination period for the Principal's Teaching and Learning Awards are open from now until January 31st. These annual awards celebrate great teaching and educators. The award categories are Indigenous Education Award, Curriculum Development Award, Educational Leadership Award, Educational Technology Award, International Education Innovation Award, and Promoting Student Inquiry Teaching Award. Nominations may be submitted by students, faculty, staff colleagues, department heads, or deans. In other news, the SGPS will be hosting an open discussion town hall on Tuesday, November 22nd from 4.30pm to 6pm on Zoom. This is open to all members of the SGPS community. To register, please visit the link in the SGPS Instagram bio. Next, the AMS grand opening in the Rideau building took place today. After the ribbon cutting, the event featured fun games such as a scavenger hunt. The building will now house many important organizations and clubs, such as the Tricolor Outlet, Studio Q, Buy POC Talk, and more. That's all the headlines for today. Now over to Zayden Vergara with an interview on mental health. I'm now joined by Amy Ecclestone and Jess Rose from the Canadian Student Mental Health Network. How are you both doing today? Great, thank you. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit more about the S, uh, SMH Network? For sure. So I'm sure as all our listeners who are students know, um, during the COVID pandemic and everything beyond, all student mental health has really been deteriorating. People are anxious. People are having symptoms of all kinds of mental health disorders, psychological distress, and there really isn't resources um, to meet these needs of the students. So the network kind of was created by Dr. Brooke Linden here at Queen's, who aimed to create this universal mental health promotion tool specifically for post-secondary students. 
So it's basically a website that splits into a few pillars being access, connect, and learn. And it's full of curated and created resources for mental health and mental wellness and well-being, um, specifically curated for post-secondary students. Do you have any events coming up? We do. We have um, an exam prep de-stress event going on um, early December, uh, TBD with the date. Mm Um, But we will be hosting a booth set up in the ARC where we'll be giving away little de-stress exam care packages um, along with little information slides about our our network to try and get the information out and get more people using our resource. Uh, Do you both have certain strategies that you use personally to help you de-stress that could easily be applied for other people? Yeah, I think information is so powerful. So I think like getting educated on different tools, whether that's breathing tools for when you're feeling anxious before an exam, that helps me a lot. Or even just talking to people who are, you feel you can trust in your life to discuss certain things. I think it's greatly helpful. And also knowing what resources are around you, which is a big part of the network is connecting people to the resources that already exist at their school, which I think sometimes people don't realize how many things are available to them. And I find that incredibly helpful. Yeah, I would say I definitely agree. Knowing what resources are available to you and actually where they are is definitely really helpful. Um, I found that one thing that really helps like me deal with my mental health as well is learning that there are strategies out there outside of counseling and peer support groups, how there's so many different ways to foster your mental health, uh, like self-care strategies, there's apps out there. And I found like things like that were way more applicable to me than some more basic strategies. So really, again, an understanding of what was out there is really important. Now, if people want to have more information about the SMHN, where can they go? So the website URL is just Student Mental Health Network, um, and it should be the first thing that pops up, and all of our information is there, as well as we're currently doing a review of the website. So if you do want to go through that review, you will get entered into a draw. Yeah, you can win up to $15 Amazon gift cards, so very exciting. Wonderful. Thank you both again for coming in. I've been talking with Jess Rose as well as Amy Ecclestone from the SMHN Network. Please go check them out. Good evening, everyone. My name is Zayden Vergara, and it's time for your CFRC Sports Update. The Queen's University women's basketball team has been ranked sixth by U Sports after starting their season with four dominant straight wins. They are going to be put to the test on Friday against the Carlton Ravens, who are ranked seventh by U Sports and also have a 4 0 record. The game is at 6 p.m. in the Arc's main gym. Come out and support your Queen's Gales. Queen's Varsity Cycling Club hosted and competed in the first University Cup mountain bike race since 2019 this past Saturday. Athletes completed two laps of an 8km technical off-road loop at the local community bike club venue MTB Kingston. Racers did an amazing job through grueling, muddy, wet and slippery conditions from the heavy rainfall the night before. The exciting mass start began with a long road stretch followed by a 180 degree through the MTB Kingston barn straight into a technical pump track. The remainder of the course took races through challenging single track containing wood and root features through the forest. The race finished through a rocky technical uphill to the finish line stretch. The event was entirely set up and run by the Queen's Varsity Cycling Club athletes led by team captain Henry Dowd. Queen's led in the overall team category followed by the University of Waterloo and the University of Guelph in second and third respectively. The Gales also swept the podium in both men's and women's categories. The Kingston Frontenacs are looking to end a two-game losing streak in their game against the North Bay Battalion Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the Leon Center. They previously lost to the Mississauga Steelheads in overtime 3-4 and to the Ottawa 67s 7-1. 
That's all for your sports coverage. Now over to Chris and Chancellor with a community update. This is Chris coming in with your community update. This week, I'm sitting down with Suzanne Pasternak, local artist, and Michelle Clarabut with the Marine Museum to talk about the premiere of the film Minerva, a fundraiser for the Marine Museum taking place at the Spire tomorrow, Thursday, November 17th. So, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe talk a bit about how you're both involved with the film and the museum? I'm Michelle Clarabut, Programs and Communications Manager at the Marine Museum on the Great Lakes in Kingston. And, uh... We're very grateful to Suzanne Pasternak, local author, artist, to, who approached the museum about doing a uh, fundraiser and premiere of her new, or latest work, I would say, uh, Minerva. And I'll let Suzanne talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it's really exciting for me, and um, what a great space to do the premiere of Minerva. Uh, it's an incredible story, true story, about a 17-year-old ship's cook and captain's daughter from the late 1800s who um, heroically, when they shipwrecked off of Oswego, New York, after having sailed from Kingston to Oswego, um, she rescued each man off of her ship one by one, single-handedly. And just such a compelling story. Um, it certainly captured my imagination. And it premiered the folk opera. I got this idea to create a folk opera, so weaving beautiful sort of Celtic folk music, in with um, a narration of the story, a very dramatic story. And I spent years researching out of the Marine Museum of the Great Lakes in Kingston. And this is way before internet, so none of this stuff was online. So I'm down in the, you know, deep into the archives at the Marine Museum. And without that research, I, the story never would have been told at the level it has been. So uh, I approached Michelle about um, premiering this multimedia version of Minerva and um, during the pandemic the Isabel Bader Center gave a bunch of performing artists a residency there and access to their all state-of-the-art film equipment editors sound engineers and um, so we merged the folk opera into a book uh, being dramatically read by an uh, actress and uh, the music, the themes, and also some video footage of giant waves destroying a lighthouse. <laughs> so um, it worked really, really well. And because of the pandemic and the constant closures of auditoriums and concert halls, um, I just never had a premiere, but it will this Thursday at the Marine Museum. Yeah, awesome, and thank you for sharing the connection it has to the Marine Museum and all the details about that. Um, so I wanted to get into like just what the actual premiere is going to look like on Thursday. Uh, it's reception for those who are interested um, to join us before the performance at 6.30 in the Marine Museum's lobby, uh, where we will be joined by Suzanne and some of her creative team who will provide a bit of a Q&A opportunity along with um, a sneak peek performance. And uh, so the, for, those, for those who are interested in participating in the reception, uh, the, yeah, the tickets for that are $75 with proceeds from um, the sale of these tickets supporting the Marine Museum and our efforts to rebuild uh, for an, 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 on a number of different levels. Um, and then anyone who's just interested in coming to the film premiere, absolutely, they're for a $35 ticket, you're welcome to come and um, around at 7.30 when the premiere will happen as well at the museum at 55 Ontario Street. 
Okay, perfect. And you just got into the fundraiser a bit. What kind of projects are you hoping to work on with the money you raise from this? Whether it's uh, new exhibits that are going to go into our renovated spaces, whether it's new programs that are going to engage people and connect them with the Great Lakes, um, or it's uh, special events like the one we're doing right now uh, to help uh, engage, connect people with, with uh, maritime heritage of the Great Lakes, uh, whether it's um, social, economic, historical um, environmental perhaps, uh, you name it. We're all about connecting people with our Great Lakes and our freshwater resource. What I love about working with Michelle is her excitement and philosophy, the importance of merging the arts with heritage. And then um, where can folks get tickets for this event? Yes, yeah, so all the information about the event and for tickets, uh, you can go to our the Marie Museum's website, so that's marmuseum, M-A-R museum.ca forward slash Minerva. Awesome. And is that the best place to keep up with you guys as well, the website? Website or by all means follow us on social media at Marine Museum Kingston on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. And Suzanne Pasternak. And Suzanne Facebook. Perfect. Okay. Be sure to get your tickets for Minerva tomorrow evening and keep up with the Marine Museum and Suzanne on social media. Next, I'm passing it to Dinah with the weather. Thanks so much. And now it's time for the CFRC weather report. And yes, winter has begun. Tonight, we're expecting mainly cloudy skies with a 30% chance of flurries this evening with winds up to 15 kilometers an hour and a low minus three. Thursday, we'll see mainly cloudy skies with a 30% chance of flurries late in the morning and in the afternoon, a high plus two. Tomorrow night, we'll see flurries with a low minus five. Friday, we'll see flurries with a high plus one. And Friday night, flurries again with a low minus five. The outlook for Saturday, more snow with a high of zero. And Saturday night, a low minus six. And on Sunday, we'll see cloudy skies with a high of zero with cloudy periods that evening and a low minus five. And now it's over to Alexandra Fernandez with the City of Kingston Traffic Report. Thank you so much. This is your weekly traffic report brought to you by the City of Kingston. I'm Alexandra Fernandez. The nighttime Santa Parade is taking place on November 19th, this Saturday for the annual parade. Princess Street from Sir John A. Macdonald to Ontario will be closed from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Ontario Street from Princess to Johnson will be closed from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. And northbound Sir John A. Macdonald Boulevard from Bath to Princess will be closed from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Again, this is taking place on Saturday, November 19th. Other road closures that you can expect for this week, Garrett Street from Division to University will be closed until November 20th. Lower Brewer Swing Bridge will be closed until further notice. University Avenue from Union to Earl will be closed until January 21st, 2023. And Wright Crescent from the south intersection of Palace to 16 Palace will be closed until Jan 31st. Please note that access to Wright Crescent will be through the north intersection of Wright Crescent at Palace Roads. The School Streets Initiative is still in place and will be in place until June 29th, 2023. The following streets are closed from 8.40 a.m. to 9.10 a.m. and 3.20 p.m. to 3.50 p.m. on weekdays. McDonnell Street from Earl to Hill and Sydenham Street from Ordnance to Colburn. The third crossing bridge from Ascot Lane to Point St. Mark is still an active construction site. The contractor is maintaining site protections, however trespassers are circumventing the site fencing and ignoring the signage that the road is closed. No public access is permitted until the formal opening occurs in December. So around John Counter Boulevard from Montreal Street to Ascot, an additional left turn lane will be opened. The advanced green light will remain bagged in the meantime and you can follow the regular green light. 
In Water Rock Causeway, removal will continue, meaning an increase in dump truck traffic on the west side until completion in December. Access from John Counter to Village on the River Apartments is currently shut down. Residents have been notified to use their Montreal Street access during this temporary closure, and pedestrians will be able to use a temporary access path north of JCB, which will be maintained at all times. Cyclists will be single file on JCB, and traffic signals at the intersection of Ascot Lane and John Counter Boulevard will be operational when the bridge is open in December of 2022. Highway 15 and Gore Road traffic signals at the intersection of Point St. Mark at Gore Road will be operational when the bridge is open in December 2022. Access through the south leg of Point St. Mark at Gore Road remains closed until the bridge opens. That is your weekly traffic report and now on to Dinah with the events calendar for the week. Thanks so much and now it's time for the CFRC events calendar. On Wednesday, November 16th and Saturday, November 19th, Queen's Players presents the gleeful rehearsal Harley Plotter and the Prisoner of Arnold Caban's Dreamhouse at the Mansion starting at 8 p.m. Follow Queen's Players on Facebook to find ticket information. On Thursday, November 17th, the Agnes Etherington Art Centre will run a free art hive for participants over 16 to explore the creative process through experimentation and play. You can register for this free event via agnes.queensu.ca. Also on Thursday, Student Academic Success Services is hosting a drop-in queer study space in Stauffer Library on the main floor in Seminar Room 121. No registration is required and the space is open to all students who identify as 2SLGBTQ+. Starting November 17th through the 27th, the Kingston Meistersingers present Mel Brooks's Tony Award-winning musical The Producers at the Octave Theatre on Dalton Avenue. Tickets are $30 and $25 for students and youth. Learn more about the performance and ticket information at meistersingers.ca. On Saturday, November 19th, the Kingston Frontenac Public Library will host another repair cafe at the 130 Johnson Street location from 2 to 4 p.m., a great opportunity for residents to bring an item in need of repair and get feedback from local experts on how to fix it. On Saturday evening, the Isabel Bader Center for the Performing Arts welcomes audiences for a Baroque Ensemble tribute concert for Baroque violinist Jeanne Lamont and featuring the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Doors open at 7 o'clock and ticket information is available at queensu.ca slash the Isabel. On Sunday, November 20th, the Queen's Women in Leadership Club hosts Beyond the Conversation, a QWIL equity summit for all students seeking to reimagine a future where women identifying individuals are engaged, empowered, and enabled to reach their full potential. The summit is free and will take place at the Delta Marriott at 1 Johnson Street between 10 and 6. Learn more at queensu.ca slash campus wellness project. On Sunday evening, the Trans Day of Remembrance Candlelight Vigil will take place at City Hall from 6 to 7 p.m. Attendees are encouraged to bring a candle and dress warmly for the event that will take place on the front steps. Finally, don't forget CFRC's annual funding drive is now underway. Help CFRC raise funds to build a new website, fund a radio theater camp for local youth, and support station operations by donating today via cfrc.ca. And that's a wrap for CFRC's events calendar and our program today. Keep up with the latest in campus and local news on the go by subscribing to the Today in YGK and the Scoop podcasts via Spotify and iTunes. From all of us on the CFRC News team, thanks for tuning in and have a great week. While natural gas is a safe and reliable fuel, you should know the rotten egg smell of a gas leak. 
Before Utilities Kingston delivers natural gas to your home or business, they add an odorant, which gives it that sulfur or rotten egg smell to help detect leaks. If you smell gas, leave the building immediately and call 911. And remember, carbon monoxide alarms are now required in most homes by law.